Hi, I'm Peter Erpes, and welcome to episode four of Alt Control Create, the podcast about creativity and creative business in these changed and challenging times, brought to you in association with Expo North. In this episode, I talk to writer, journalist and musician Dan Fox, who will be known to many throughout the art world for his work as editor of Freeze magazine, a Dan is these days based in New York. So two years ago, Dan published a short and, in my opinion, unique book called Limbo, which was published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. The jacket blurb to the book states, In a world that demands faith in progress and growth, Limbo is a companion to the stuck, the isolated, delayed, stranded, and those in the dark. And if that sounds like an increasingly familiar dilemma to you or for you as you go about trying to maintain a creative life and or a creative business, well, I think this is a key work for our times, a fascinating cultural history of limbo, but also a validation of the fallow period in the creative process of the break or the stop and its positive benefits. My thanks to Dan for doing this, and well, let's get into it. And remember, if you like this podcast, please download it, subscribe, share, and tell the world all about us. Well, hi, Dan. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to do this podcast, traditional intro I now have a few episodes in and I'd like to start by asking you if I can um, also something that's a bit of a tradition for this podcast which is can you tell me um, what you were doing immediately prior to the hit of lockdown now I know you're in the states so the timings of all this are a little bit different but essentially it's the same all, all over and it you know you're working I presume up to a point and then all of a sudden projects are dropped or you know stuff stuff just kind of comes to a to an end how, how did that play out for you? Well, it was late February and I was actually in the UK um, because I've been working for the last couple of years on making a documentary film um, for the BBC, music documentary. And we were in the final stages of post-production and um, I was in the UK. I had plans to visit my mum and dad um, who live uh, who live just outside Oxford, and I was in London and Brighton doing some work on the um, on the on the last finishing stages of this film, and things were starting. You could just sort of feel things were starting to get a little bit hairy. Sure, um, uh, you know there was the, the things were sort of floating around in the news, and I decided to curtail the trip and to go back to um, New York, um, where I where where I live. Um, and I got back to New York and the plan was, was like about two weeks into March, because it's the end of February, beginning of March, two weeks into March, I'd be going back to Europe, be going to Copenhagen for, um, a film festival where we'd be showing a, a, a cut of the, this, this film. And then just within a, you know, a few days of getting back, everything suddenly changed. I remember the last time I was actually out anywhere before the pandemic began was I went to the cinema with my girlfriend and we uh, watched a film and we were in the bar afterwards. And I just remember someone saying, you know, someone who was just stood nearby saying, Oh my God, they're closing the borders. You know, they're shutting down travel. Yeah. And at that moment I knew, okay, well that's the film 
<laughs> uh, put on the shelf. That's the, you know, the film festival was then cancelled the next day. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty much the next day that, you know, we began living indoors for a, a quite, quite a long while. I felt like I was on the brink of, you know, a, finishing off a project, getting out into the world, and then it was just kind of completely put on hold. And what was the actual film you'd seen that night? Was that in any way sort of prescient to the, uh, to the events unfolding or surreal in the, in the re- uh, reflection? I wish I could say it was. It was... Um, a friend's film and she was um, doing a screening at a little cinema um, in Manhattan. And it was more of a kind of, you know, like a, like a nice celebratory event for my friends. And the film was actually, it was about a, 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 a man who's suffering from Alzheimer's and about it's sort of told in flashbacks about his life and his relationships and then flashbacks from the present, you know, or he, he you know, obviously his, his, his mind is shot. So there's nothing I can really I sort of say was sort of felt like, you know, prescient or, or, or sort of strangely kind of spookily, um, uh, uh, right for the moment. But I would say that the film that I've been working on with my, uh, co-directing with a friend, it's about, um, uh, a, a notorious British group, um, from the end of the 1970s called Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. And, um, some of their subject matter in their songs, you know, they de- dealt with very dark subject matter. And at least one of their songs is about um, uh, a pandemic. Well, not a pandemic, but it's about like um, a really, really deadly infectious disease. Okay. So something suddenly felt quite right about, you know, this music that was made in a time of crisis, you know, the end of the 70s, economic crisis, massive, you know, demonstrations and riots everywhere, people worried about, you know, the bomb, the end of the world, all kinds of things like that. So as the pandemic developed, it suddenly felt like, oh, God, our film suddenly feels weirdly kind of relevant in terms of a previous historical moment where, you know, we all felt, well, people all felt that, you know, things were reaching a calamitous head. Yeah. I mean, it, it's um, really interesting. I mean, we'll come on a, in a little while to the article that you wrote for Limbo, the magazine, which I think owes um, its title in no small sense to your, to your own. To your it own does. Book. And they, they, they were nice enough to acknowledge that in the editorial um, <laughs> statement to the magazine. So I very much appreciate them giving the nod. Yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that um, Limbo and Limbo in terms of your, uh, your book um, has raised um, back into kind of incredible prominence at this time. If ever a book had a moment that, that arrived uh, two years after its publication or 18 months after its publication, then, then, then this is it. But um, this book, and I'll just, um, for, the, uh, for those listening in, I'll just read the um, a, a little bit of from the blurb on the back of the book. In a world that demands faith in progress and growth, Limbo is a companion for the stuck, the isolated, delayed, stranded, and those in the dark. Fusing memoir with a meditation on creative block and a cultural history of limbo, Dan Fox considers the role that fallow periods and states of in-between play in art and life. And in the beginning of this book, you say somewhere near the front that, in fact, this book itself arose out of a bit of a stuck moment, that you weren't actually supposed to be writing this book. And uh, But then this is the book that emerged from the ashes of its of its never-completed predecessor. Can, can, I, can I ask you, first of all, what was the book that wasn't 
written. And then <laughs> more importantly, um, what were the kind of ideas that kind of, you know, came together, coalesced for you to actually produce this book in that in that moment? Uh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, it's a mixture of things, really. I think, so initially, what I wanted to write was um, a kind of uh, a, a travel book, uh-huh. uh, maybe a collection of travel essays. Okay. Um, so up until that point, you know, I mean, I'd written one book before that, which was called Pretentiousness, Why It Matters, um, which was much more closely related, I suppose, to the, 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 the industry that I was working in at that point, you know, in the, in the art world, contemporary art world. I was an editor for Freeze magazine, contemporary art magazine. Um, and there are various things, you know, that I'd also done in my life that I'd never really had an opportunity to write about, um, including um, uh, I took a container ship from England to China once um uh another there was another episode in uh, involved china as well i play i I run a small record label and play in a a band and we did a a, had a very strange tour of a part of northern china once many years ago and you know i always wanted to write about that and what a sort of um strange adventure that was a few things like that um um uh staying on a, a commune a commune in in northern california just things like that so i started to start to write around that and it just i don't know something wasn't quite clicking do you know what i mean it was just like something didn't really feel feel like it was working and there wasn't a sense of I mean, one thing I found when I write, for instance, is that, and whether that's a short thing or a long thing, is that um, there will come a point during the process where everything in the world suddenly seems to be connected to this thing that I'm writing about. And you just sort of suddenly start noticing it everywhere. Like when I was writing pretentiousness, for instance, you know, suddenly the entire world was full of examples of pretentiousness that I wanted to, you know, kind of like write down and note down and, 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 and sort of, you know, think about. Um, And anyway, this wasn't happening with the travel book. And then I guess some, uh, there was a sort of very personal, um, uh, circumstance circumstances at the same time um uh, a, a, a relationship had uh, ended very very badly and um i was also starting to feel quite jaded and a bit i have to say you know slightly depressed in my my job okay. um for the magazine and a bit jaded with the art industry and you know sort of not really quite knowing like ah what do i want to do and I just, I couldn't concentrate on the travel book. It just didn't really seem very relevant. I couldn't even, you know, and if I wasn't in, interested in it, who on earth else would be? Yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah, you know, the whole thing sort of went into a bit of a tailspin. I didn't really know what to do. And I'd, I'd, I'd already at this point signed a contract with Fitzcarraldo Editions, my publisher, for this new book. And so I was feeling, you know, although Jacques Testard is an amazing, amazing publisher, an incredibly sympathetic editor who's very sympathetic to, you know, the the um, whims of difficult writers. <laughs> um, uh, I still, you know, I still owed him a book. And, and so, you know, I was very con- conscious of that. And then... 
I, I, I remember I was sat having a sandwich one day in a cafe near where I, I live and I was just thinking, God, I'm stuck. I'm really stuck with this. And then it just sort of struck me that maybe that, that is actually my subject yeah. is being stuck. Yeah. Um, there could be something interesting to say around that. And I started thinking about it and thinking about how often it's part of the conversation that I have with friends who are also writers or artists or musicians or people in, you know, in, in kind of creative, um, uh, you know, who do, do creative things in their life. And how it's a thing that's sort of never really talked about. You know, you know, you can get like there are sort of self-help books about create, you know, overcoming creative block and that kind of thing. But I never really read anything that was really studying like what 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 that what the idea of sort of not making things means to an artist. Yeah, um, yeah. What it means to kind of to to trip over yourself to to um, to experience the fallow period, as as you know, the back of the book says and. Um, and how does one get past that? And is there indeed something productive about it? Or indeed, is it actually part of the creative process? Yeah, absolutely. You know, is, is a lack of create, not a lack of, is not making something part of what, a, part, a necessary part of what, what one needs to do. And I think that, um, you know, especially in our present moment, the word creative, you know, I, you know, I think this has been happening loosely sort of since the 1970s actually the word creative has sort of you know slowly migrated in its meaning out of a sort of strictly kind of artistic sphere and into you know first advertising and then into some media and then you know much more into like business and big business and tech and now you know every corporation uses the word creative you know in its blurb in its managed you know mission statements all these big silicon valley firms you know talk about creativity and what is missing from that in you know the, the complete toothlessness of that word as it's been appropriated by business um, is all the idea of sort of non-productive productivity and all yeah. the kind of the weird things about being a creative person. And instead, all that's been stripped away and it's been in its place has been put all this stuff to do with making, 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 being productive, innovating, disrupting, all those kind of words that business loves to use these days. And actually that that really doesn't map properly onto what a creative life really is for an art, you know, for an artist um so yeah so 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 that's kind of how i got around to sort of thinking about um the idea of being sort of stuck and then usually part of my writing process is there's a lot of kind of free association that goes on a lot of kind of associative kind of um thinking which kind of helps me you know kind of generate ideas and you know the the idea of limbo uh, slipped into my notebook at one point you know that word um, appeared one day and I, it just kind of, it just stuck. And I kind of got, well, so to speak, it, 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 I couldn't get away from it. And so I started thinking about limbo and, and, you know, what that specifically means. And it's, it's, it's kind of long history. It's long cultural history of of what that word means in in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, and that provided then the, the kind of the loose framework really for, for the books. I mean, the book takes, um, an incredible, path almost of its own when you say sort of free association but they all 
kind of tie together. You know, we've in the book as well is the, I mean, it opens with a, a great image of the Headington shark, which um, for anyone who's ever been around that part of the country is indeed a, a very alarming thing. One day, um, a large shark appeared in the roof of a suburban house. And the story is that you used to take a, a bus past this, um, this, you know, particular thing. And it, um, you know, provided a, a kind of a stark image at the beginning of the book. I think that kind of sums up quite a, quite a lot of um, of of the initial direction. But also um, about your own brother, um, this uh, an, an, an elder brother who uh, left the family home and took to the high seas as a kind of a, a masterly uh, yachts person and sailor. And the absence of that um, can I get? Is there a sense in in limbo that that a lot of this is actually about sort of power and anger a strong sense i think also of of loss there's also in that though the frustration isn't there of a child who loses their 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 brother in a kind of powerless way the world changes very abruptly doesn't it you know and we're sort of in that in that moment now would you would you say that that kind of sense of 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 powerlessness uh, is central to this idea as well. Is that is that in the mix? Do you think you felt in that moment of frustration around a book not being written or something that actually you couldn't you couldn't do it? It was you know this is a power thing and it creates stress and all the rest of it. You know that is a really uh, that, no one has put it like that before. I think that's a really fascinating reading um, uh, and, and, and line of interpretation. Power is a very very interesting word to think about in relation to this because it's you know it's it's sort of it's correlate it's control yeah um so yes you know to to a certain extent the 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 um you know when 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 things aren't flowing as it were you know when the kind of the 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 words aren't coming or you know you're 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 stuck in the studio and you know you don't know kind of this you know the painting isn't working or whatever it is you're doing um yeah, there's a feeling of a, a lack of control. You can't, you can't, you can't be creative on demand, you know. And this is the this is the absurdity of of, of you know. Sorry to bang on about this, but like you know, the, the the appropriation by business of the idea of creativity, the idea that you can just go in the office and be creative. And it, I, you know, I don't really think that's a very creative idea in itself. You know, it's not something that happens in a nine to five way, um, and you know it. It, whilst I don't want to sort of also on the other hand, like I, I wouldn't want to say that suggests that, you know, I believe in a kind of like 19th century romantic idea of being visited by the muses and you just have to wait for the great inspiration, you know, from the heavens. Um, uh, because a lot of, you know, great art gets made through hard work and just doing and making things and plodding and, and just sort of working, laboring through stuff as well. Um, I do think there is there there is this sort of sense of um uh there can be a sense of like frustration that ah oh, why isn't this thing working why can't I solve this problem why 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 can't I concentrate or focus um so yeah it's about the power uh, the power to be able to sort of channel your 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 kind of creative creative energies um I think it, you know there's another there's a reverse way of looking at this which is that there is a power in refusal. There is a power in not doing, you know, there is a power in saying, no, I'm not going to work today. 
yeah. because it's not happening. And I'm not going to sit and bang my head against the wall just trying to write this next chapter if it's not going to happen. I'm going to go away and do something else. Um, or, you know, the, the there is... Um, uh, you know, one, one thing that kind of often happens with um, artists when they become very successful is that their representatives or their agents or, you know, their audience demands more, 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 more of the same thing. And, you know, that can be, of course, for various reasons, money, ego, fame, contractual obligations. You know, it can be very tempting to sort of um, uh, succumb to but there is also a real power in going like, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to take, I'm not going to make an, you know, I'm not going to make a painting for you this week. I'm not going to write a song for you. I'm not going to make an album this year. I'm going to have a, a year off or, or I'm going to do something else. I'm going to look after my family. I'm going to look after my, you know, my next door neighbor. I'm going to do something for the community, you know, do something else instead. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, 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 make a passing reference to it in you know in the book you know the the, the famous um uh bartleby the scrivener you know yeah. i would prefer not to yeah you get asked to do something it's like no i prefer not to yeah i mean i think there's another um very interesting spark uh, particularly for me spark in this book was uh, how as well how reluctant we are in creativity in creating in the arts and music, which I'm involved in to actually, or how difficult we find it rephrasing this to actually say that particular creative trajectory of mine, that thing that I've said is what I do actually that ended. And I don't know what comes next. How how do you feel about that? I mean, have you ever been in the position where limbo has become, where you realize actually, well, it's not just a kind of, I need a week off. It's actually, I'm going to do something else now. My life is changing at this point, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a a thought that has been very, um, uh, one that I've I've really sort of um, dwelled on quite a lot in the last 18 months, two years, actually. So uh, as I mentioned, I I worked as an editor for um, this magazine, Freeze, for, for a long time. I worked for them for 20 years. Yeah. Um, so I, I went to art school in the late nineties. I thought I wanted to be an artist, be uh, you know, a visual artist. Um, I did that thing of, you know, moving to London and thought, Oh, I'll just get a day job and then, you know, make art and around that. And, 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 you know, one, one day it'll all kind of work out. And, you know, I, you know, was extremely short of money. I, just couldn't work out what um, how how to how to make that function practically. Also, I think it was well, a, a very it was an interesting moment because I actually um, so this was around about twenty two years old. I felt like I'd come to the end of a particular body of work in terms of what I was making yeah. as an artist. I was making these like short little Super Eight films, and I just sort of reached a point where I was like, oh god, I'm sort of. I've run out of ideas. I'm not really feeling this. I don't really know what to do. And so, you know, I'd already, I'd always been sort of interested in writing and I, I, I ended up getting an internship, which then turned into a job at Freeze. And they were very encouraging, extremely encouraging to me um, when I was, when I first started and they suggested, you know, are you interested in writing about art? <laughs> and so 
I, you know, I, so I, so I began, you know, did a, did a couple of things on spec for them. And, and, you know, then that, that developed into me being a staff writer. And for a while, I really felt more interested in looking at what other people were doing and writing about what other people were doing. But I didn't really think that being a, a, a writer at that point was, this is my calling, you know, this is the thing that I want to do. Okay. Um, Soon after that, a couple of years after I began working for free, so you know the the, the early two thousands, um, I began playing music more seriously with with, with friends. Um, the classic sort of you know British thing of like you know it's all your mates from art school and you form a band, you know kind of thing. And and I formed a little record label, and you know and the record label is still going to this day. And I've been playing music on the side, sometimes you know quite a long time will go, you know, between one project and another. But I've been doing that, you know, for the last 20 years or so. Um, but always the magazine and the 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 um, art criticism was kind of central to what I was doing because it was my job, it was my livelihood. And I got really involved in it. And, and, you know, and I enjoyed the process of making a magazine. That was really fun. I've always enjoyed working with other people. Um, and the, the, you know, that's something that you'd know about as a musician as well. You know, I like playing with other people and, um, you know, the, the one thing about being a writer is it can be a very kind of isolating, solitary experience. So, you know, working for a magazine was really nice. There was a sort of a sense of a team spirit as well as, you know, I had the opportunity to, to, to be creative and write. Um, but gradually over, um, the last two decades, you know, the, I, I witnessed the art world change in quite a big way. Um, it expanded quite massively. Um, it's always to a certain extent been about money, of course, but that just sort of became the God in the art world. And, and I, I noticed it sort of started as a, as a business area, you know, it started to kind of, it just started to become full of like all kinds of middle management people and, and lots of the fun for me just started to kind of disappear from it yeah. it's uh, I, I there seem to be fewer and fewer weirdos and eccentrics and odd people and and like minds frankly and more and more kind of very nice very professional people in it from a kind of business management point of view and and i i just started to feel a bit alienated from it to be honest yeah. and it really started to kind of the crunch was really coming around the time that limbo my book uh you know i was going all through the various sorts of like you know tearing my hair out crises you know around that and i for, for financial reasons mostly I, I i you know i had stuck with the job i couldn't figure out a way to I couldn't, I, I, I was too scared to take the plunge to go freelance. But then one day, um, the, one of the owners of the magazine phoned me up at home. And it, not very, very, you know, we, we, we get along well. And he just said, um, just wanted to ask you, Dan, um, how are you feeling about the job? And I just heard myself say, I think I've come to the end of the road, actually. <laughs> I, think I'd like to, I think I'd like to leave. Yeah. And we had a very nice, a short, but very, very nice conversation, put the phone down, walked into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee and just thought, oh my God, what have I just done? I've just handed <laughs> my notice in okay. and just, just felt this enormous sense of like a weight lifting from my shoulders, sure. which at that yeah. point told me this is what I needed to do. Yeah. And then 
you know, uh, um, I worked through my notice um, and I, you know, took the plunge into sort of, you know, doing freelance, becoming a freelance writer and freelance other things. And I decided at that point that I wanted to go back to being an artist again in some sense or other. Or I realized at that point that actually all these years of being an art critic and writing, but then also doing music on the side and and looking for various different ways in which to kind of think through writing, you know, with film or doing kind of, you know, audio essays and radio, things like that. I think all all that time in a funny sort of way was a kind of a long journey back to kind of being an artist again. And since leaving the magazine and, you know, taking the precarious step into freelance them, while the economics are sort of, you know, terrify me, um, on the other hand, I, I feel more like myself again than, than I have done in a long time. And it feels, it really feels like a new, it has felt like a new chapter in, in, in my life, if that's not a corny thing to say. I, I don't think it is because, I mean, I've, you know, as a, a sort of writer myself, I've sort of, you know, travel between the various worlds of music and writing these days, hopefully seamlessly. That used to worry me, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> you know. But then it does connect in a way to that whole thing about being crazy, where you're supposed to be one thing or the other. You know, mm-hmm. you can't be serious if you're like a, a, a polymath in, in sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've never liked that. I've never... I've never really felt that myself and I've never really subscribed to the idea that, you know, the single minded focused obsessive artist just doing that one thing is, is the only model. I, I, I really, really loved, um, there's an interview I heard years and years ago, about 15 years ago with Brian Eno, Uh which I really, which really resonated with me. And I still, I, I, I think sort of was a bit of a, almost a kind of like a eureka moment for me where he talks about how he's a dilettante. And that actually he's not really that good at doing lots of things, but he's interested in lots of things and the experiences of lots of things and about how the dilettante um, can sometimes be more innovative than the expert because the expert can get very constrained by this, the idea that there are rules and there are ways of doing things. Whereas the dilettante being slightly naive and slightly ignorant, kind of like blunders in and, and sort of can act it almost like accidentally do interesting yeah. things because they don't know any better. Um, I mean, that's a bit of a tangent, but I, but certainly the model of like uh, more of a kind of a, a polymathic model is, is, is something I'm more interested in. I feel like my life is, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a virtuoso at anything, but my life is richer for having the ability to be, um, to, for the ability to be able to dabble in a lot of different things. I mean, one of the things, that, so, you know, on the writing side, over the years in, in the work I do um, in the Highlands and Islands in Scotland here has been writing development, you know, which um, has been very much focused around um, the commercial publishing world, you know, <laughs> with uh, emerging writers and established writers who have got projects that have got, you know, commercial potential and will be of interest to publishers in a very broad sense. You know, it's not kind of you have to be doing the latest crime thing or the latest romance or whatever the, the, yeah. the season is at the moment, you know, in a very broad sense. And it's amazing how often it occurred in those one-to-ones, you know, which were full of advice was available about 
people's tax and how do you approach an agent and how do you do a cover letter and how do you do a synopsis yeah. sort of thing. The one most common thing that arose in those conversations was a sense that people were actually looking for permission to do something um, rather than a know-how. What they were looking for was the permission to actually say to themselves, you know, uh, this is my trajectory this is my work this is my project in many cases well it was um you know that actually i am a writer i need to take time out of my life to do this and i it's affected me badly by not doing it you know and Mm. uh, and i suppose you know being sort of employed by a business development agency i represented some kind of uh authority authority figure which (laughs) to those who know me (laughs) listen to this will find that uh a moment of high comedy (laughs) but uh, but in reality it didn't really matter if the if the if the authority figure was a you know laughably there placed the fact was i was an authority figure you know a bit like sort of father ted you know who's a sort of <laughs> bit of a priest father ted is the right development world you know i can do that you know um you know and i, I you know and that so that part you're always say it was like a sort of circle you came back to it you know and then all of a sudden you we made that leap you know i mean it, it occurs to me in reading this book as well that actually that's because those things are all going on inside and underneath as we create and we never actually learn the skill of kind of analyzing our own position i suppose it's like a sort of psychotherapeutic approach this you know we never acquire the the creative skill or part of the palette part of the thing we learn at art college isn't actually about things like fallow periods it isn't actually about how do you manage actually a creative life you know mm-hmm. and, um, that's why i find uh, a book like this so um so interesting and so in, it, important it feels like it does something and i think it does do something really new you know in the associations it makes i mean thank you we're in the pandemic now did any there's anything in this book is anything in the process of writing this book make you feel actually conversely very well qualified to make use of this disrupted uh, time uh well i'd say the extent that um uh my daily life didn't really change a great deal going into the pandemic to a certain extent i mean of course like some very basic things of course totally change you know your relationship to just sort of especially in the early days of the pandemic when we knew far less about the virus you know just the idea of sort of stepping out of the door um uh became you know quite sort of a, a kind of fraught with all kinds of anxieties i suppose um you know the the ways in which i use the city um as inspiration as a you know as a place to kind of you know gather information or or do things that you know even sort of tangentially might be useful to my own work you know just might set off spark off ideas you know going to the cinema going to a, a an art gallery going for a walk in the park whatever you know those things changed radically so you know the world kind of shrunk in a sense but being a writer you spend a lot of time on your own and you spend a lot of time in your own head and um i think and that doesn't just go for writing you know i know painters and sculptors you know who who, whose life is like that as well and and you know it can be um 
it can sort of feel lonely, but you can, there's a certain sort of resilience you have because you, you realize, well, this is the thing that I'm doing. This is the thing I've chosen to do. Yeah. And this just comes with the territory. Yeah. And so when the, you know, the, the lockdown began, it's like, well, okay, it's, um, you know, time to kind of really draw on those reserves of resilience that you have, you know, in, in, in sort of the isolated work that you do. So, uh, to a certain degree, yeah, I did feel, um, um, kind of reasonably well equipped to go into it. You know, it wasn't as if, um, my days at that point were, were spent, you know, going to an office, going and working with other people. Um, my job doesn't require, you know, like, like that, say being a teacher or, 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 you know, a frontline worker, you know, it, 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 it sort of doesn't require being with lots of people and, you know, in, in certain kind of space. So, um, so yeah, in a sense, you know, I'm quite, yeah, quite lucky, quite privileged really to, to have that, um, have it so that my you know my 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 working days are aren't are already modeled around a certain kind of um isolation yeah yeah well i think one of the um images in the book that i I think sums up um the period of pandemic lockdown better than any other is the part where you're actually on the container ship and tramping from the uk to china uh, in, in a sabbatical uh, from 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 work, uh, it's a great a great great uh, part part of the book. And but there's a part where you say that you've got this route that takes you out to the far end of the ship, and you walk it on your own past sort of um, you know what becomes sort of very familiar landmarks over the weeks that you're on board. Yeah. And then sometimes you stand at the end of the um, at the end of this boat and look out to sea and uh, the rest of the world is kind of left behind. But so also sometimes you experience an incredible um, kind of disorientation of things stopping. Of the, you, you couldn't actually tell whether the, the sea was moving, whether the boat was moving, whether anything was moving, And yeah. uh, because there was no landmark, there was nothing. Um, and I think that's a, a kind of a... Uh, incredibly interesting moment um you say you know we've got that you can hear the trains rattling behind your your flat there and you said also that, that that i think it was your brother who said to you that sometimes in the isolation of the sea you actually hallucinate hearing a hearing a, hearing a train go past yeah yeah you know you really have a sense of wild of, of being in a kind of wilderness out in the sea you know the sea is is a is, is a desert in that sense um yeah. And when there are no, when there are no, <clears throat> when there's no land and when there are no other ships, you know, you have no sense of movement at all. You yeah. know, the only movement you can see is when you peer over the side of the ship and you can see the water kind of, you know, the, the ship cutting through the water. But if you look, you know, a- any further ahead and out towards the horizon, it just appears completely still. You don't appear to be making any progress whatsoever. So it's this very strange thing of feeling like you're in a, a giant, vast Petri dish. Yeah. And you're just sort of you're you're just sort of at a standstill there. It's a very very weird, weird feeling. Um, and it, you know, you mentioned the noise of the trains just then. I can hear a train going past right now. One thing that I really noticed about New York when the pandemic began was how silent it became, yeah. and how disorientating that was. You know, in a city such as New York, where it's always about the noise and the noise of people on the street and car horns honking and trains and everything that just 
for a while that all disappeared there were no planes going overhead towards like jfk the subway pretty much stopped for a little while and it was silent and then there was this really dark phase where it was either just bird song or ambulance sirens was all you heard yeah and it was very very strange to 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 just go and walk out and there's a park across the street from where i live and just go and walk out in the park and not really hear anything that, that was very disorientating you mentioned in the article that you wrote for limbo magazine just moving on to that about that experience and that one of the newspapers or museums produced a series of digital recordings of new york life for the benefit yeah, of yeah the new york public library did it yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i'd recommend anyone listening to this to actually go and find that because it is quite a beautiful project in its own way it's really yeah there's something it's both funny and really sort of melancholy i think and beautiful the project you know so each track is a different sort of very very classic new york sound so the sound of the subway the subway coming into the station or the sound of like you know the growl of a taxi and like cars honking and you know the sound of grand central station at rush hour things like that you know it's, it's beautiful yeah. Uh, and in, in uh, so Limbo magazine, our listeners to this podcast will know that magazine because we interviewed its editor uh, a couple of editions back. Nick Chapin was um, on and talking about the founding of that and the debt that he felt um, spiritually, should we say, that, that that project owed to your own work. <laughs> uh, and it's a very, I, I think it's a very beautiful thing, very productive thing, you know. Um, but you mentioned in that that you uh, were able to kind of, or you tried to reproduce the cinema experience in uh, your own. <laughs> How's that gone? There were a few films that you kind of referenced that seemed to be to you at that point in various ways relevant to the, or not to the uh, <laughs> pandemic lockdown. What, what, are you, what are you watching at the moment? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Cause, cause, cause back then, like, you know, everyone's watching, everyone's talking about watching Contagion and all these sort of, you know, sci-fi pandemic films. And, uh, instead I was watching things like, um, like Fassbinder's Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, which is all set mostly about drinking gin at home. <laughs> you know, that's like, yeah, that feels quite familiar, more, more familiar than a sci-fi thing. Uh, God, what am I watching at the moment? Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of TV series, you know, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not particularly original with that, you know, like everyone just sort of, you know, binge, binge watching a few kind of, you know, things on Netflix and, and so on. I mean, we've tried to sort of have uh, our own sort of mini little film seasons here, like pick a, you know, a director or a genre or something and, you know, plow through a few of those films. Um, uh, but I, I mean, what's the latest thing we're watching? We're watching this Dutch, uh, Danish um, drama, Borgen, which is a series that's been going on for years and years and years about, you know, um, uh, you know intrigue in Danish politics. And I, I don't know why, it just sort of feels, um, feels like quite a fun thing to watch right now, especially also as, you know, here in the US, it's not just the pandemic, but all the kind of, you know, tension and divisiveness around the election coming up. You know, yeah. I mean, it's been a real roller coaster ride in lots and lots of ways this year here in here in the US. Um, yeah, I mean, the pandemic, and then the you know the Black Lives Matters um, uh, uprisings, and then you know, and then now the now that now the election coming up. I think it's fair to say that at the beginning, I don't know whether this is a fair description, that uh, like many of us, you uh, downloaded uh, quite a large number of art movies and set about having uh, make, trying to make productive use of 
what was an unknown period of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I know for me, certainly I did that. And now I am also pretty much glued to Netflix and just whatever. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think in a, in a way that that's also about like having at least some sort of sense of community, isn't it? You know, it's like it's something to kind of talk about with friends on the phone. Yeah. you know, as well if you watched on TV because there's, there isn't a lot of other activity that you're doing that, you know, you can kind of talk about. So, if, in a, you know, I think it doesn't matter what you're watching, you know, if there are other people, if friends are kind of, you know, watching the same comedy show or drama or whatever, you know, I think you, it, it provides like a bit of a, a, a point of connection with people. Um, I mean, one thing I really enjoyed, one thing that started during the pandemic, which I really enjoyed is a, a website called the Cinephone. And it's rather than being an on-demand film service, it's like a kind of pirate um, TV station where they just screen 24, uh, films 24 hours, but according to a schedule that they, do, they only kind of um, publish like a day or so in advance. So you basically just log on and you watch whatever's on. And that's been a really nice way of actually being forced out of certain habits and forced to kind of out of your kind of comfort zone and to be like, oh, what's on Cinephobe right now? Oh, gosh, it's this, you know, weird 1970s thriller from, you know, Spain or whatever. Like, okay, I'll watch that. And maybe I wouldn't have chosen to watch that. But then you kind of, you know, you watch five minutes and you next thing you know, you've, you know, disappeared into the whole thing. You're like, wow, that was really good. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I, I've always quite liked the being given something to watch rather than you know the, the the kind of the horrible limbo of of the endless scroll through netflix or iplayer or whatever it is like should we watch this no should we watch this no you know i actually quite like constraints i mean that's one thing that uh, maybe you know one should mention here is that that we've been placed in a situation of enormous enormous constraint yeah. but for you know, the creative person, to go back to your question about, you know, how prepared I was for the pandemic, a creative, you know, constraints are part of what it is of being an artist to a certain extent. You know, sometimes you can't make the thing you want to make because you haven't got access to the materials or the money or, or, or the space or whatever. So you make do with what you've got. And I mean, one project that I did early on in the pandemic was I made an audio book version of limbo um which i recorded here at home and i just let all the sounds of the sirens the subway whatever new york sounded like outside the window um my girlfriend you know making coffee in the kitchen just let that be part of it you know so it was about this idea of sort of placing limbo the book within a like a domestic soundscape as it were and i wrote a little bit of music for it and you know and 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 abridged the book slightly um but it's it's like a very very intimate personal reading of the book from the place in which you know i was stuck um at this new point in time rather than the point in time i was was stuck you know when i was writing the book and you know that for me was a really really um valuable project not least also because by a strange turn of events um my brother who features in the book my my brother who's a sailor um, one thing that he's been doing a lot of uh, and he's into at the moment is he's um, he's retraining at the moment to become a voice actor to do voiceovers. Okay. And he's got really, really into the audio engineering side of it. And so he was able to take my recordings and to do a lot of nice bits of like kind of post-production tidying up of my 
my recordings and send them back to me. So in a funny kind of, and I got him to read his own quotes from the book. So it became like a really beautiful sort of way to reconnect with my brother. Um, and we could work on making this audio book version of Limbo together, um, which there's a beautiful circularity to it because so much of the book is about the point in time when I was a child, when he left home and, you know, and we didn't know what had happened to him for you know months and months on end as he was away at sea. Uh, so, you know, in a very personal way, the, 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 the lockdown did, did, um, did provide this, this strange kind of emotional experience and beautiful emotional experience with my brother. And that's, um, available, is it? Where, where, where could we access that? You can download it through the Fitzcarraldo Editions website. Oh, that's, that's... yeah. I initially made it just for SoundCloud as a free thing. Um, cause you know, again, everyone's in economic free fall and it's like, well, here's something I've just done. You can have it. Um, but at a certain point we decided, well, maybe we can try and, you know, make a little bit of money off it. You know, not everything was right at the point where it shut down in yeah. all of our creative worlds. Can I just ask you, you know, given, given that this, many of us hope that this would be a moment of reset or an opportunity for reset, unplanned, unforeseen, but suddenly in front of us, what would you, you know, if you had to sort of like say, well, these are the things I'd like to see most changed that returned some of the kind of things that you talk about in Limbo to being a, a realistic proposition for people in creative life and in creative business, where, sh- where should we go now? God, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a big question. Um, I mean, there are many, many aspects to that. Um, I, I like the the example of Bandcamp that you brought up um, because, you know, one thing that I witnessed certainly over the summer when the Black Lives Matters protests were going on was how Bandcamp would every month, um, and they still do it, you know, they every month they um, have one day where they don't take any fees from the artists. from So whatever you sell through Bandcamp, you, you get to keep. And what that led to over the summer was that on that day, um, so many musicians I knew said that they would give that their, anything that they sold on that one day, they would then give to various organizations, you know, related to, to, to that particular, um, moment. So there's this sort of enormous sense of solidarity, which was really, you know, very beautiful. I think another thing that has happened, you know, in, in this awful moment is that, you know, there have been so many layoffs in the creative industry. So many jobs have been lost and someone said something early on in the pandemic which really really resonated with me you know in the creative in lots of creative spheres you know the word family is sort of used overused like you know uh, you know uh, you know the family of people we work with what sort of family as soon as economic circumstances become difficult what sort of family cuts off other members of its family yeah yeah you know you don't do that and so, you know, I, I witnessed so many, so many kind of fundraising attempts for like cinema workers who'd been laid off, you know, museum guards and educators who'd been laid off and, you know, people who do all the really important work, really important work, but which might not be recognized because, you know, they're not the big directors of the museums or they're not the, you know, the film stars or the movie directors, you know, these, but these are really, really essential, essential people in, in, in the creative field. And I think that, you know, this might, if, you know, this moment I hope gives people a sense of perspective again on those, on, 
those of us who 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 work incredibly hard to provide um great spaces in which you know people can go and see music or go and see films or go or go and see art so i think valuing them and valuing them economically and in terms of their you know their labor rights and so on is is something i hope that we remember i hope that you know, I mean, one one terrible, terrible kind of you know upshoot of this moment is that a lot of people are facing eviction and homelessness um, because they're unable to pay rent, and especially in big cities like New York or London, where rent is exorbitant. Mm. You know, you, I, I just hope that some some kind of temperature comes down with with the kind of the the, the cost of living, because you know, I museums don't make culture. Um, cinemas don't make culture people make culture and people being able to live a life where they can afford to pay the rent put food on the table dress you know clothe their kids do the kind of you know the basic things you need to do have a studio space that you know it doesn't have to be huge but you know just somewhere that's affordable and where people can afford to have an education you know an art education not come out of it in terrible debt you know, I think all of these things are, 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 are vital for a for a, um, you know a, a, a thriving culture and thriving creative creative um, world. And I and I and I think that if we come out of this with anything, it's a sense that we need to kind of reset the economics a bit more to make life a more kind of like viable thing for people who want to make things, whatever it is that they want to make, and that you don't have to feel that it's a desperate desperate struggle juggling five different jobs and then feeling too knackered at the weekend to go into the studio and make whatever it is that you want to make you know that's not viable for anyone and i don't think we should be living in a world where only those who are people who are independently wealthy um or have the means um are the only people who can afford to write or make music or act or dance or, or whatever it is you know it should be a situation where everyone can feel that they can have a chance and have a go at that so that's my little lecture there. <laughs> well, I'm interested in uh, absolutely. Um, well, look, I'm ever so grateful to you. Thanks so much for your. It's for been your, a pleasure. Yeah, absolute pleasure for me, for me too. And um, uh, I'll uh, put uh, in the text that goes with these podcasts links to you and, and your work because I know people very much will want to want to connect with that. And indeed, the audio book, which sounds amazing. I, I wasn't aware of that, and uh, that, that sounds fantastic. So we'll, we'll link that up uh, as well. But um, meantime, thanks so much, Dan. I'm so grateful. Thank to you, Peter. You.